Romans chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Please be seated. The Bible, brethren, is bookended with the sweet presence of God among his people. In the beginning, God would come and walk in the cool of the day with our first parents in the garden, in that most holy place, as it were, within the temple that was the earth, the earth as God had made it. But as our first parents rebelled and fell, they were banished from the garden and from this this most special communion with God. However, at the end of of your Bible, at the end of all things, the consummation of redemptive history sees the climax, the climax of this theme of temple as God once again and as never before dwells with his people in the new Jerusalem, in that ultimate expression of temple where it can actually be said that there is no temple, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And all of redemptive history then looks forward to this ultimate reality of temple. The whole of the Bible anticipates this ultimate fulfillment of God's presence with his people and And so after the fall of man, in anticipation of Revelation 21-22, God is present in the Old Testament with his covenant people, but in a limited way, through the tabernacle, and later by way of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. However, as we know, Israel would ever persist in her presumption and idolatry, and God would eventually judge her. And the glory of the Lord would depart from her, from Solomon's temple, handing the temple over to destruction and the people over to exile. But this divine judgment would come as well with a divine promise, a divine promise to return for God to once again dwell among his people. Ezekiel 37, 27. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Or Malachi 3.1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And again, this promise of the return of the presence of the Lord among his people is ultimately fulfilled in Revelation 21.22. In the new Jerusalem, in that which is not yet. However, in the New Testament, there is still a present dimension to this renewed presence of God with his people. In the New Testament, there is a temple still. For we read that the church herself is a sort of temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16, For we, says Paul, we are the temple of the living God. And then Paul actually quotes from the Old Testament promise of Ezekiel 37:27, which I just referenced. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We are the temple of the living God. 
And so how then are we as believers now God's temple? Well, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Or 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? For Paul, the Holy Spirit is no mere force or power or influence but rather the very fulfillment of the promise of God that he would once again and as never before dwell among his, his people. Even that God himself would dwell within his people. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer then, I would submit to you, is central to the Christian experience of redemption. Essential to the to the. Uh, uh, and, and central to the salvation, the, the, the Christian's experience of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is true as well in this present time where we await our final salvation in this time of the not yet. For it is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we now taste already of that which is not yet. In other words, it is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that the final glory of the presence of God among us is brought into the presence or into the present to be experienced by us now for the Holy Spirit is the earnest the foretaste of what awaits us in the new Jerusalem Ephesians 1 13 when you heard the gospel and believed in him says Paul you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee the earnest the foretaste of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. At the center of the already not yet framework of the New Testament and the church age is the Holy Spirit. It is by this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, brethren, that we, the church, become the eschatological people of God, the end times people of God, the consummated people of God, Yet not fully consummated, but yet brought into the presence, uh, into the present. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are formed into the people of God, among whom God now dwells in the present, in the already, by the Holy Spirit. It is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we become a new people, God's people, God's eschatological people. And I think it is important and helpful and even essential for us to realize this, to view ourselves aright, to view ourselves as God sees us, as his covenant people, his treasured possession among whom he is most pleased to dwell. To reckon ourselves as no longer of this world, no longer of this present evil age, but rather belonging to the age to come. The whole of the human race, brethren, are as dead men walking. The whole of this world is but death. We live in an age of death. Can you feel it? But we, brethren, are not of this age. We are not of this world. We belong to another world, to a distant world. And we belong to a future age. We are of the future, brethren, of the age to come. We belong to the not yet, already. 
I think it is hard for us today, brethren, in our current Christian climate, at least in Reformed circles, to actually overstate the importance and significance and even centrality of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian, in the life of the church. For I would submit to you that it is by the Holy Spirit, brethren, that we as Christians are actually enabled to live the life of the future here and now in the present. It is by the enabling of the Holy Spirit that we are able to live. Live in the reality of who we actually are. Live as those who are of the future glory, yet living in this present age of death. It is the Holy Spirit that forms the church. The Holy Spirit that conforms the Christian. It is the Holy Spirit that sanctifies the believer and transforms us into the very image of Christ to which we have been predestined. It is the Holy Spirit that bears his holy fruit in us to the glory of our Father and performs supernatural giftings through us to the praise of his glorious grace. It is in the Spirit, brethren, that we truly worship. It is with the help of the Spirit that we even know how to pray. It is in the strength of the Spirit that we can comprehend the love of God for us. And in the strength that he provides, there is no limit to what we can suffer for our Lord's sake. Amen. For it is through the witness of the Spirit that we gain an absolute assurance of our Heavenly Father's undying love for us. And the Spirit's indwelling presence is assurance that our mortal bodies will be raised up on the last day, just as Christ was. And therefore, by the filling of the Spirit, we gain boldness, brethren, to ourselves bear witness of his amazing love, even unto death. We live in this age of sin and death and decay, this age that belongs to the evil one. But we, brethren, we belong to the new order of things. We belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. But how? How are we who are so weak and so prone to wander and in whom dwells no good thing that is in my flesh? How are we ever to bear fruit to God? How are we who still live in this present evil age surrounded by the darkness and in whose heart still reside the residuals of every sin? How are we ever to bear fruit for God? That is our question this morning, and the answer by this point in this message and in this conference ought to be obvious to us all. One year ago, during our first annual conference for my second message, which was entitled Sovereign Grace to Set You Free, I preached from Romans chapter 6. And in Romans 6, we saw how Paul is basically exalting grace lifting up grace, glorifying grace over and above the law. Paul is presenting grace, the grace of God, as far better than the law, the law of God. Paul is making the case that to be under grace is far better than to be under law. And in this, then, Paul is putting before us two orders, so to speak, the old order and the new order. And the line of separation between these two orders is basically the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
as it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that actually ushers in that new age. It is the crosswork of Jesus that opens up the floodgates of God's grace through the gospel of God's grace. And it may help for you to picture this graphically by drawing in your mind or on a piece of paper a vertical line that separates a column on the left and another column on the right. And, and, and with a horizontal line near the top of those columns upon which you can then label each column. And the column on the left is entitled Old, for the old order. And the column on the right is entitled New, for the new order. And the vertical line that separates these two columns, forming these two columns, along with the horizontal line that caps these two columns, forms a cross, which signifies, of course, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, which brings an end to the old order and ushers in the new order. Now, in Romans 6, Paul is populating these columns for us, thus defining and describing these two orders. In the left column, in the old column, there is law, sin, and death. While in the right column, in the new order, there is grace, righteousness, and life. And Paul spells this out for us, actually, at the end of chapter 5, Romans 5, verses 20 and 21. Now the law, the law came into it to increase the trespass or sin. That's the old order. But where sin increased, says Paul, grace abounded all the more. That's the new order. So that as sin reigned in death in the old order, grace also might reign through righteousness. Grace through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord in the new order. In the old order, the law reigned, and thus sin reigned, for the law was powerless to kill sin. In fact, it only worked to increase sin. And therefore, under the old order is only death. And why? Because all fall short, all sin. And so under the law, there is only condemnation. Under the law, there is only divine disfavor. And why? Because the law reveals our sin, and through our sinfulness. And and through our sinfulness and through our sin, God judges us, or the law judges us. The law is the reigning principle in the old order. Our sinfulness is is exposed by the law and judged according to the law, and therefore it brings the disfavor of God upon all. And what is the disfavor of God but condemnation? Condemnation that brings forth death. Law, sin, sin. Death. That is the pre-cross order of things. But, says Paul, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more with the dawning of the new order. Grace is now the reigning principle. So that as sin reigned in death in the old order, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life in the new order. With the crosswork of Jesus, there is a new order that is established. And in this new order, this new covenant, grace now reigns. And grace, says Paul, reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life. Grace, righteousness, life. That is the post-cross 
order of things, the new order. And while under law again, there was only the disfavor of God because the law exposes our sin, but is powerless to actually deal with our sin. And so the law can only bring the condemnation or disfavor of God upon us. On the other hand, what is the very definition of grace? But God's unmerited favor. The very definition of grace is favor. God's favor. And so to belong to the new order is to be under grace, not under law. It's to be under God's favor, ruled by God's favor, ruled by grace. To be under law is to be under God's disfavor, left to oneself to go on sinning, and and that can only lead to death. But to belong to the new order is to be under grace, God's grace, God's favor, Grace that will pardon and grace that will cleanse within and thus produce that righteousness that leads to life. And so again, under the law is to be under God's disfavor and thus left to sin, enslaved to sin, and sin leads to death. While to be under God's grace through faith in Christ is to be the to be the very is is by the very definition of the word to be under God's favor. And by this powerful divine influence to put sin to death and to walk in the newness of life. And so the old order, law, sin, death. The new order, grace, righteousness, and life. And what is the means by which we are transferred out from under the law and placed under the grace of God? But the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, by looking away to Jesus Christ crucified, putting our trust in him, look and live, as it were. Again, Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what Paul is doing in Romans 6 is, 6 is basically glorifying grace, exalting grace over and above the law, even throwing the law, as it were, under the bus. For Paul thus far in his letter has managed to demonstrate how the Jews who were under the law were no better off than the Gentiles. In fact, they, that we are both equally disadvantaged by sin. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And this lack of advantage for all those under the law, if you think about it, only proves and exposes the ineffectiveness of the law. The Jews had the law of God. And yet they're no better off than the Gentiles, the lawless ones. Though many believed among them that the law was the key to righteousness and life, the law actually only brought sin and death, as Paul makes clear. And this begs the question then, why? Why was the law so ineffective and grace so effective? What is the mechanism here? How does this work? Why is there only more sin and death in the old order, under law, under Torah, 
while in the new order, under grace, there is righteousness and life. And if you think about it, the question, at least the second half of it, is basically the same question I asked at the beginning. How are we who, sh who still live in this present evil age and in whose hearts still reside the residuals of every sin ever to bear fruit for God, righteousness unto life? Well, in Romans 7, Romans chapter 7, Paul gives us the answer to both sides of the question in verses 5 and 6. Why such failure under the law and yet righteousness leading to life under grace? Romans 7, verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, says Paul, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Why was the law so ineffective? Well, under law, we remain in the flesh. Those under law are yet merely human and thus powerless against sin. And sin then seizes on the opportunity through the commandment and produces all sorts of rotten fruit leading to death. In other words, it is not the law that is the problem, but sin. And that is what Paul elaborates on in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 7, a section which ends with this. Verse 11, for sin... Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul is dealing most likely with those who would charge him with finding fault in the law of God itself, in such a way as to effectively consider the law of God to be sin. And so Paul answers that charge. No, the law is holy. The commandment is good. However, sin deceives and uses the law, the good law, to produce sin in the one who is yet under the law. So while Paul is clearly throwing the law under the bus as a means of righteousness and justification, Paul is not saying that the law itself is bad or unholy. And it wasn't just sin that Paul pointed to back in verse 5 as being the true problem, but what else? The flesh. The flesh. For, for while we were living in the flesh, says Paul, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And so again, the problem is not with the law, but with the flesh. And what then do you suppose Paul is doing with the rest of chapter 7, verses 13 through 25? Well, he's unpacking how the problem is with the flesh, not the law. He's making a defense of the law and throwing the flesh under the bus. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law bring death, asked Paul? By no means. For we know that the law is spiritual. The law itself is of the Spirit, in other words, given by the Spirit. But, says Paul, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, says Paul. 
verse 18. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my flesh, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. With the flesh I serve the law of sin. I really think it misses the point to come to this section and immediately ask the question, is this pre-conversion Paul or post-conversion Paul? Is this an unbelieving Jew or is this a believer? And if you're not aware of it, that is the big controversy that hangs over this text and can, I think, be a distraction. For I don't think Paul is necessarily trying to introduce such categories. He's not working in those categories. Paul is basically defending the law here as good and even spiritual and revealing how the true weakness in the law is actually found in him, in Paul, in all of us, in the unbeliever and the believer alike. That is in our flesh. It is the flesh that is the culprit here. Paul in these verses is throwing the flesh under the bus. It's absolutely ineffective in decreasing sin and bringing about righteousness no matter who you're talking about. And the fact that such strong cases can be made on both sides of the controversy here, here I think only strengthens the idea that Paul isn't intending to draw that line at all. He is simply throwing the flesh under the bus, even his flesh. Paul is throwing himself under the bus, as we all need to do. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, says Paul. That is, in my flesh. And Paul does so again, one, to make a defense of the law as good and even spiritual, and second, to again set up a contrast. To set up a contrast, this time between the flesh and the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And that then is where Paul is heading as we move into chapter 8. Remember the answer Paul provided as to why there is only sin and death under the law, but righteousness and life under the new order came in two parts in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. The first dealing with the ineffectiveness of the old way, and the second dealing with the effectiveness of the new way. Again, let me read it. Romans, 5, uh, Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. It is not the law that is, a, that is to blame for, the, for its in, ineffectiveness to provide righteousness in life. Rather, the fault lies in sin. That's verses 7 through 12. And in the flesh, verses 13 through 25. But, verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. And that points to ahead to chapter 8. So where does our help come from in the new order? Where does our help come from? Under grace, or put another way, how are we who still live in this present evil age and in whose hearts still reside the residuals of every sin, how are we ever to bear fruit for God? 
How are we ever to produce that righteousness that brings life? Well, whether we be saved or unsaved, we can, I think, all learn from Paul's personal testimony in chapter 7 and acknowledge that it is not going to happen by the flesh. For there is no good in me that is in my flesh. Amen? No, the Holy Spirit is the answer. The Holy Spirit is the antidote that Paul puts forward here to the flesh. And this comparison between the flesh and the spirit then adds another entry to each of our columns. We're under the old order or the old way. We can now add the flesh. And so the old way is law, sin, death, because under the old order, we are all left in the flesh. We're under the new order or the new way. We can now add the Holy Spirit. And so the new way is grace, righteousness, and life because... Jesus Christ has baptized his church in the Holy Spirit because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Truly it is just as Jesus said to our advantage that he departed and returned to the Father. For as much as chapter 5 verses 20 and 21 contain Paul's exaltation of grace, his glorifying of sovereign grace, Romans chapter 8 now contains Paul's exaltation of the Holy Spirit, his glorifying of the sovereign Holy Spirit, the living source of all grace for the believer. From verses 2 to 16 of in chapter 8, Paul names the Holy Spirit 15 times. That's an average of one per verse over 15 verses. Paul is exalting the Holy Spirit here. For far better than the flesh is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Amen? And it might be worth noting that the closest Paul gets to an imperative, a command in those 15 verses, is found in verses 12 through 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Holy Spirit. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The main thrust in Romans chapter 8 is assurance. Blessed assurance. Look not to the flesh, brethren, for we owe no allegiance to it, and it can do nothing for us. In John 14, Jesus assures his disciples that though he is going away, he will come. He will return to them and dwell with them. And they and him through another helper, through the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, look, not to the flesh, brethren, but hope in God and believe in Jesus and be led by the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Rely no longer on your own resources, but avail yourselves to the power and the life that is yours in Christ Jesus through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For he will see us through. He will set us free. He will bring us to our destined end in glory. For if he now dwells in us, then he will surely raise us up on the last day. Look to the Holy Spirit. Look to his gracious presence within you as the guarantee that you will be raised up. 
a reminder that this life, though but a vapor, is the beginning of our eternal life, the beginning of our new life in Christ. You do not belong to the old order of things anymore. You have not been left to the weakness of the flesh under the ineffectiveness of the written code, but you've been set free, free in Christ. And you are being enabled now unto righteousness through Christ who dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. And so now look. Look to the Holy Spirit to bear witness with your spirit that you are indeed a child of God and an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. And let him move you to cry out, Abba, Father. Look to the very presence of the Holy Spirit in you, the earnest of what awaits you to give you assurance of your redemption to come, even to have you eagerly anticipating your adoption as sons, the redemption of your bodies. Look to the Holy Spirit to intercede for you, to ask for even that which you do not know to ask for. Look to him to intercede for you with groanings too deep for words. Look to the Holy Spirit for your help in time of need, to help you in your time of weakness, to be for you wisdom when you know not what to do or to say, to be for you strength in times of suffering, to be for you boldness when facing shame, to be for you hope, hope in which you are saved. Look to the Holy Spirit to bear his gracious fruit within you and to work his powerful gifts through you. Oh, how we need to be praying, constantly praying, ever praying for more of the Holy Spirit, brethren, to be filled with his gracious presence, controlled by his powerful influence, to be in step with the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, ever led by the Spirit, that we might truly live, brethren, the life of the future, here in the present, even in this present evil age. Oh, may our gracious Lord grant it for his glory and for the good of his church. Amen.